Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Securing America's Waters, a conversation with U.S. Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Carl Schultz. Please welcome our host, James DePayne, Policy Analyst in Defense Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Hey, good morning, everyone. Very excited to kick off this conversation with Admiral Schultz here on the U.S. Coast Guard. And, you know, there really are some organizations in this world that punch above their weight do more with less, and the Coast Guard is certainly one of the best examples of this. And very excited to hear the Admiral's thoughts on the service and kind of what uh, challenges and opportunities they face going forward. And to kind of kick us off here and get, get things rolling, we're going to start with a, a brief video, and then we'll, we'll start the conversation from there. What makes the world's best Coast Guard? It's not our cutters. It's not our aircraft. It's our people, the U.S. Coast Guard Maritime Professional, the human connection we create when we train and work alongside partners around the world. Whether it is supporting combatant commanders and protecting national interests, working with our partner nations to protect the world's oceans, defending free and open trade in the Indo-Pacific, or preserving and protecting national resources and interests in the Arctic. The U.S. Coast Guard models acceptable maritime behavior across the globe to bring stability and security. Not with a domineering spirit, but rather a cool and even-tempered perseverance in our duty. No one else can do what we do. We are the world's best Coast Guard. That was a great little, great little introduction. So, Admiral, with uh, yeah, thanks. You James. want to go ahead and, and lead um, off? And, and James, thanks for uh, the privilege of being here, and then the warm welcome into the Heritage Foundation. Really excited to talk about the Coast Guard. You know, um, we we do pride ourselves, and I, I think I sleep at night pretty confidently saying I think we are amongst the world's best Coast Guard, not the world's best Coast Guard. And one disclaimer: when you say the Coast Guard does more with less, we're trying to put some space and distance between that. We want to be the Coast Guard that the nation needs, and I think that's really a conversation about doing more with more. And uh, the, the demand for Coast Guard services is truly unprecedented across the globe. But I was going to do a couple open remarks and really reserve the balance for, uh, for audience questions here today. But James, you know, when I think about it, I'm, I'm biased, 38 years in this service, and, uh, and, and we bring a lot to the game. And um, I think an affirmation of that was week before last, I was up in Newport, Rhode Island for uh, CNO Mike Gilday's International Sea Power Symposium. We had not met. It's a every other year event. We're supposed to meet in 20, so we missed last year's cycle with the pandemic. But we got together this year, over 100 global naval leaders from across the world, and these are navies, coast guards, and it's a chance to really look at, you know, the importance of maritime security, uh, safety, free and open oceans, and, and it's interesting that I found myself, as the common U.S. Coast Guard, a pretty popular guy. You know, you really look at many of the world's navies, really look a lot more like the Coast Guard, the United States Coast Guard, with the bundle of authorities. You know, we have Title 10, Title 14, Title 50 National Intelligence Community Authorities, and that brings a lot to the table. I think smaller navies 
do a lot of Coast Guard Lake work for their nation. So I was approached by many countries from the African continent, obviously here in the Western Hemisphere, South America, we've been partnered for years, the Indo-Pacific region, uh, we're doing a lot to build out the capacity of the ASEAN partners, you know, you look at Australia, New Zealand, but I think really we've been in this business, I think for 231 years, and I think some folks don't realize we've been a global Coast Guard, I think we're increasingly a global Coast Guard today. You know, when I sort of think about what is unique there, it is that law enforcement authority, it's that federal regulatory authority. It's the name member of the intelligence community back, you know, a good part of 19 years or so now. And I think that allows us to partner and collaborate from, you know, local, state, federal levels here in the United States with all kinds of partners from a sheriff in, uh, you know, Santa Barbara, California, one or two boats to partnering with DOD across the globe here a little bit. That's a sort of a unique combination as you roll it up together. And really, um, we use this unity of effort model. You know, most recently, we were down in the Gulf region for Hurricane Ida, which which struck the, the uh, Louisiana coast on the 29th of August. We were ready for a Harvey-like event. You know, back in Harvey in, in 17, we pulled 11,000 people out of flooded streets and off rooftops in Houston. This didn't manifest to that kind of event, but it was the second, actually tied to be the most uh, impactful high wind storm, little different devastation. We really saw more of the tragedy following the storm up across the entire mid-Atlantic through New York and New Jersey. But that's sort of who we are how we're postured, how we respond each and every day. You know, I think as as I was sitting there in Newport, what was that common theme that I heard? Because I think this is going to be probably a question that's a little more internationally flavored today would be my suspicion. But, you know, they think about domain awareness. And many coastal nations, smaller countries in particular, don't have a lot of capability or capacity. So they want to partner with us. They want us to help them shape their coast guard. They're interested in excess defense articles that they get from you know, the United States Coast Guard, maybe it's uh, foreign military sales. How do we help them build out the Coast Guard? So we're doing a lot of that across the globe. I think they're realizing that there's nations that are undermining their sovereign interests and maybe really just ignoring their sovereign authorities and po poaching for fish. You know, we talk about IUUF, illegal and regular unreported fishing across the globe. And that's a, you know, sort of a ch real challenge to fragile coastal states sovereignty. It's a, it's a, fish sustainability issue, it threatens the ecosystems, the really fragile maritime ecosystems. It's really a, a global food sustainment conversation. So a lot of interest off the African continent, South America, and, um, and these nations want to figure out how to protect their sovereign interests. And, and who looks like you know, a partner in that? It tends to be the United States Coast Guard. And um, you know, my strategy sometimes is so you get all these asks and, and folks say, well, you know, how do you say yes? I, I think it's almost imperative that we do say yes. Folks are talking about, you know, the post-Second World War rules-based order, how critical that is. And while there's a finite amount of Coast Guard capacity, it's sort of the model I've embraced is, hey, let's talk about getting to collaboration, partnership. Let's show the value of that. And let me bring that back to Washington inside my own DHS budget, you know, on Capitol Hill, through other, you know, sources of money, maybe State Department, International Narcotics Law Enforcement, INL has an interest, Pole Mill has an interest. We sort of come back here and say, hey, with a little bit more resourcing, the Coast Guard can do a lot more work on this. And that's sort of the model to sort of close that say-do gap at the end of the day. And, uh, and lastly, you know, just to wrap it up, there's very much a home game and away game part of the Coast Guard. You know, so really day-to-day -day here in the homeland, situated in the Department of Homeland Security since 2003, which I think is the right place for us, not always an easy place to sit budgetarily. We're competing with a lot of national focus over you know, the past good part of a decade on the border and Southwest land board, things like that. But I think it's the appropriate place for us. But the home game, you know, $5.6 trillion of annual economic 
activity occur in our waterways, the 360 plus ports, 25,000 miles of nautical waterways here. And, uh, and we enable that commerce. You know, when you look at Ida again for a second, you know, 85 vessels blocking channels, the uh, Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, key portions still close, Port Fushan, uh, Bayou Lafourche, these places, you know, critically important to the offshore gas industry and energy industry, the energy alone that comes through energy resources that come through New Orleans and Louisiana, pretty critical to the nation. So we're, we're enabling that. There's the rescue aspect. There's the protecting the homeland. You know, 9-11, I was in New York yesterday. I was back up there over the 9-11-20-year uh, anniversary. And the Friday before that anniversary, we, we talked about the Coast Guard evacuating more than a half million people from lower Manhattan. You know, we didn't think we'd find ourselves in that situation, but we did. And we're a much different Coast Guard in terms of security in our ports since then. And then, you know, there's domestic fisheries. There's a whole bunch of things. We regulate the ports. We regulate the vessels that come and go, uh, port state control. Then the away game. We're, you know, never been more relevant supporting the geographic combatant commanders across the world. So we got forces on the Arabian Gulf. We've been there now for you know, a good part of 15 years, 250 men and women. We've replaced two of our six boats there with two fast response cutters, two more this fall, two more in the spring. Those are, you know, truly effective arsenals in the Fifth Fleet Commander's toolbox over there to, to deal with, you know, increasingly, you know, aggressive Iranian adversary, um, Indo-Pacific, you know, Oceania, got three new fast response cutters in Guam that give us some reach. They've got about 10,000 mile reach. We team them up with maybe a, a support buoy tender that's stationed in Guam, maybe a national security cutter. We've got a national security cutter in the Seventh Fleet right now, and just over her recent weeks of patrol, she's... She exercised a new MOA with Taiwan that was signed in late March. That's sort of going to draw a lot of visibility on that. We've been partnering with the Japanese Coast Guard in the East China Sea, a little bit different area that we partnered in. We've been with the Indonesians, the Malaysians, the Australians, really thickening the lines of collaboration, really showing our reach to the Indo-Pacific. And I think when I reflect on the region, great power competition, you know, China using its Coast Guard sort of as action arm, its maritime militia. I think the Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard, has got a key role there. We can talk about model maritime governance. We can talk about free and open seas and how Coast Guards, best Coast Guards in the world act. And really, we'll be off uh, South America again on the, on the West Coast. You know, the Ecuadorians found themselves, in, and everyone saw, you know, 350 Chinese characteristic fishing boats. Many are China flagged. Many of them are flagged sort of in back room, less than transparent deals in some of these South American countries. But Ecuadorian Navy Coast Guard couldn't even go find them. So we went out for a few days with a national security cutter, Scan Eagle equipped, identified, you know, a dozen plus boats that were maybe spoofing their GPS, their AIS, not fishing where they say. But countries are looking for that support. So there's the home game, the away game, and, and the last piece is really the Arctic, the high latitudes. You know, we look at the Arctic as an increasingly geostrategic area of importance. I rode the Healy for a couple, uh, just on Labor Day, I was up there, met with the Canadian Coast Guard on board Healy. She was doing a historic Northwest Passage transit. When you think about it, you know, in the, you know, the period since the early part of the 20th century here a little bit, there's been about 300 ships that have gone through the Northwest Passage. Back in 16, a cruise ship went through, called in Alaska ports. You are seeing, you know, more open water where there used to be ice, but loose ice is actually can be a more difficult problem with winds and things. But we are building out a fleet of polar security cutters. We're increasing our presence in the Arctic. We see Russia, you know, really double, tripling down in the Arctic with forward deploying military resources. They envision the northern sea route as a toll road. So all that looks like Coast Guard work. So let me let me stop there so we really reserve that time for the questions. So so thanks for a chance to just sort of walk across. And if I could take one last thing, if you just take a quick run through the slides, the first slide. 
So this is just some of those Coast Guard activities I talked about from, from the ICE to the National Security Cutter, rescues, regulatory work. Second slide, I just want to call a couple minor points. This picture in my upper left, Coast Guard AIT, that's the advanced interdiction team. That is a, that's the USS Normandy, what, 567-foot cruiser, Navy cruiser. That whole flight deck is covered with arms. The forensics probably point to those arms going to the Houthi rebels. It was a Coast Guard team that inserted from a, from a Navy team over there. So you got this Coast Guard, high, inter, high salters, what we call the advanced interdiction team, the SEALs and the Expedition Marines. They're on a rotational basis. We've had three or four of those big weapons cache interdictions here in, in, in the last year or so. National Security Cutter, Global Partnership, uh, response in Haiti here most recently, the August 4th earthquake, and uh, we got in first. We're sort of that holding force, three, four days, rescued 350 people, brought her help from the Southcom team after Healy, doing science work on that historic passage. Uh, a fast response cutter up off of Greenland. That's uh, five uh, or six young ladies. There was, they did a little social media post how excited they were to serve being operating off the coast of Greenland. And then really Ida, and then next slide. This is just REEZ, our exclusive economic zone. We saw a Chinese surface action group operating up near the Bering Sea. But if you look at all the EEZ the United States owns and is responsible and cares about and has sovereign interest in, that's the region of the world that your Coast Guard's focused on. And then the last slide we're going to stop on here. This is just a framework that I tend to look at Coast Guard authorities through. You know, uh, when Jim Mattis was a Secretary of Defense, he really talked about cooperate where you can and compete where you must. I sort of rolled that into the Coast Guard slide. You know, it's cooperate, compete, and conflict. So that zero to, you know, 135 degrees, 140 degree arc, that co cooperate to the red arrow, to me, that's where the Coast Guard lives every day. That's what we bring to the fight. We collaborate, we partner, we build our capacity. We're in the conflict, we're written in the war plans, but that really is the DOD lethal piece. We're sort of that bridge between State Department diplomacy and DOD lethality. So I, I sort of frame our role across the globe, really through this dashboard or this slide here a little bit. So let me stop there, James, and, and turn it over to you. Yeah, thank you, Brent, Admiral. Brent. And you've given me a lot of a lot of good material here to work for, okay. to, to work through. So thank you. Um, first thing I kind of want to key in on is the the character characterization of the the home the home game and the away game. Yeah. So these are two big priorities, and there is there does seem to be slightly increasing demand on the away game side. How does the Coast Guard balance its responsibilities, Western Hemisphere, U.S. coastal waters, with the more global demands, supporting diplomacy, working with partners? And then is the institutional culture of the Coast Guard adjusting to this, or is there some uh, hesitancy to, to kind of go lean in further on, on the global side? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question, James. And boy, there's a lot of rabbit holes I could go down. I would tell you, you know, if you look at our service saw, it's um, Semper Paratus which means always ready, but um, it was penned at a keyboard in Alaska bar there. I think the piano is still up there, but it, opening verse from Aztec shore to Arctic zone to Europe and Far East. We have been a, a global Coast Guard really since our origins. You know, you go back to Hamilton petitioning first president George Washington as the Secretary of Treasury for 10 revenue marine ships up the East Coast, collect taxes. It was a foreign piece, a customs piece. It was a regulatory piece, but we've been across the globe. I think you're observation that may be increasingly so today is absolutely correct. And I think that's, you know, that was that ISS, International Sea Power, supposed to all those nations, hey, how do we get more partnership with the Guyanese Ghana Coast Guard they're building out? The Nigerians, where we transfer two former high endurance cutters to Nigeria. We, we're going to be back over the African continent here this fall. 
we were there about once every five or seven years with a cutter. We do stuff in the in between years with disaggregated teams. They ride on you know host nation ships, sometimes you know allied partners in the region. We'll have been back there each of the last three years, and I think our presence will be, if not every year, maybe every no more than every other year. But the the Portuguese talked to me when I was at ISS. The Brazilians have a ship now off the African continent. The Danes are down there, you know. So how do you team that together? I spent some time with the first Sea Lord, and we're looking at maybe a Coast Guard disaggregated team of some sort, law enforcement team, fisheries detachment team, maybe on the HMS Trenton. They've got a, some capacity on board. So I think it's how do we start to collaborate there? But, but you know, you talked about the cultural piece. So we are a seagoing service. We're going to have about... Uh, you know, growing our number of seagoing billets as we're building offshore patrol cutters, finishing up national security cutters, polar security cutters. I'm sure there'll be some cutter acquisition questions, but, um, you know, I think there's an excitement. You know, men and women joined the sea service to see the world. This past 17 months has been tough. Pretty much the only port calls you've been getting is to go in and get a bag of gas, some fuel, and some food and logistics. Hasn't been a lot of liberty, but I think those young ladies on the Richard Snyder, 100, you know, 154 patrol boat up not breaking ice, but operating around Greenland, teamed up with a, a medium endurance cutter. You know, they're just talking about the excitement with that. And uh, I think they may have stepped foot on New Greenland here, got a chance, but sailors want to see experiences. I think we had the Hamilton National Security Cutter up in the, uh, in the Black Sea. We hadn't been there since you know, 2007, 2008. And we trained with the Ukrainians, the Georgians. They have former excess defense article, island-class patrol boats. Kind of excited to see you know, uh, an excess U.S. military asset transferred to a partner out training in a collaborative joint environment, that kind of brings it all together. So, so, you know, inside the Coast Guard, I think there's an excitement. What we have to be careful is, you know, we don't sort of pit our international mission away game stuff with the home. We still got to secure the 360 ports. We've got, a, you know, that economic engine, the search and rescue. You know, we use our Coast Guard auxiliary increasingly so on some of the boating education stuff. So I think there's a balance there. And I think your Coast Guard... You know, we're a $13 billion Coast Guard now, and I, I think we're a pretty good bargain for the nation. But if you turn that dial up a little bit more, the offshore patrol cutters are global deployers that we're building. You know, first one will come in 23. I think we can be both. And, and that's sort of the trajectory that I continue to press us into. I see. I'd actually uh, write right on the, the heels of that. We'd love to ask about a comment you made earlier on about doing, rather than doing more with less, doing more with more. So the acquisition strategy does seem to be uh, kind of a one-for-one -one replacement with you know, medium endurance cutters to, to OPCs. Are, is the Coast Guard planning to acquire enough cutters going forward to have a, a fleet that's sufficient to meet the, the global demand, both you know, Western Hemisphere and, and beyond? Does the program of record need to be increased? You know, it's interesting. I mean, if you ask a naval surface chief if they have enough ships, it's probably hard to get a a yes answer there. But I would tell you, I think we've been thoughtful. Though the National Security Cutter program record was for eight ships. Eight National Security Cutters to replace 12 378-foot high endurance cutters, you know, that commissioned, built and commissioned in the 60s, early 70s. NSC is a lot more ship. It's running with a smaller crew, but it's got a, a skiff on board, so it's a contributor and end user of national level intelligence. It's much more effective on downrange. You know, one ship can only be in one place at a time. So I'm, I'm glad Congress decided to fund us for three additional national security cutters. You know, we're, we're marching towards an adjusted program, a record of 11 ships now. The offshore patrol cutter, that replaces, you know, half centurion 210s. There's 14 of those. There's 13, you know, 80s vintage 270-foot cutters. That'll be 45 years old. Some of the 210s will be close to 60 years old. But these, you know, 210, 270, 
The OPC is a 360-foot ship. So a lot more legs, a lot more sea-keeping. It's going to have the ability to launch unmanned systems. It'll carry a, uh, an MH-60 helicopter and whatever future vertical lift looks like. So I think the new ships, they're one for one roughly, but they're a lot more capable and more sea-keeping. You know, National Security Cutter, 4,300-ton ship, 419 feet. That ship truly can operate across the globe. You know, limited on the weapons. So we're, it's not a missile shooter, but when we sent two NSCs to uh, the Indo-Pacific in 2019, that was when the... Fitzgerald and McCain were out of service, you know, it allowed the Seventh Fleet Commander, the CNO, to maybe move the missile shooters to key spots and we could fill in some gaps. We were doing sanctioned work against the North Koreans. We were doing partner capacity building. So I think um, at the end of the day, what we're building, and then the last piece, a couple pieces, I, I apologize, go back, but fast response cutters. We had a fleet of 49 island class years ago. We tried to do some engineering things, stretch them out as a gap filler. We lost eight in that process, six are abroad. So really we've had about 35 domestic fast, you know, island class patrol boats that were built early, late 80s, early 90s. We've got 58 when we finish out the build out of the fast response cutter from 58 domestic, six in Bahrain. There's a lot of capacity. That's 154, 44 more linear feet in the water, more sea keeping, um, eight additional crew members, stern launch boat, really for a patrol boat, pretty sophisticated C5. ISR capability. So I think it's more than a one-on-one, -on -one, but uh, you know, I, I, I think we've got the right mix. I want to focus on, on those acquisitions, Polar Security Cutter. We're going to, it's a program record three. There's a conversation there. We probably need more. I talked about a 6-3-1 strategy, minimum of six icebreakers, three needed to be heavy, and, and that is the program record, then maybe some mediums. You know, I think there's a conversation if you got a hot production line, maybe you talk about more Polish security cutters. Maybe what does that medium look like? And then we're going to do a, a detailed design construction award next spring, spring of 22, to replace our half centurion, you know, working AIDS navigation boats. 35 fleet will shrink down to about 30, but really capable boats, wide open to women for assignments. Right now there's limitations for female um, billets on them. So, yeah, there's a lot of goodness, and I think it's, it's about the right spot for us, you know, if there's a conversation about broadening that, I think I would welcome that. But right now, we're focused on that. The acquisition budget's been pretty stable. And Congress has been very supportive as administration. Where we struggle more is the operating budget. And that's where I think we're starting to turn the quarter with this readiness narrative we've been on. Um, yeah, so actually, would, would love to. So I'm going to ask, uh, I think, time for one more question from, from me. So this will be okay, the last yeah. one. And then we'd love to give uh, everyone online the opportunity. Super. So if you yeah, have I'll try already, to shorten up my answers a little bit. There was a lot in that last two there a little bit. So I'll try to be a little great more covering succinct. covering a lot of ground. But um, so on, on that readiness and uh, kind of the operations yeah. piece, is there um, areas that you could use more support? Are there specific shore side yeah. areas ready so, for so investment? The, the congressional stage budget here that's on the Hill for 22, um, the president's budget is a strong budget for the Coast Guard. I think on the operating side, there's, you know, north of a 7% increase on there a little bit. I mean, we look at the macro number numbers and you roll it. It's a little bit smaller acquisition piece, but, you know, acquisitions has a timing sequencing to it a little bit. Um, if we get that budget, and, and generally the Congress has generally put some add-ons on the Coast Guard budget, I think that'll be a good marker for 22. So obviously a lot of ground to cover still, but I'm encouraged by the 22 budget. You know, where have we been lagging? We got about a you know a billion dollars of shore infrastructure backlog, and a healthy organization sort of recapitalizes you know two to four percent of its critical infrastructure on an annual basis. We've been about a 0.4 percent, so we're somewhere between you know 
one-tenth to one-fifth of what a healthy organization. I've said it's about 250 years to recapitalize our shore plant. That's not sustainable. So we got a lot of old stuff. I think the Congress has recognized that. The 22 budget does have some good injects there. You know, historically, the only infrastructure upgrades have been when something got damaged by a hurricane. So that's when we sort of get very opportunistic in supplementals and, and have done some things. But I think we're starting to register that need. And then backlog maintenance. I leave about, you know, four year increments of, of major cutters. So those 210s, those 270s, NSC, we, we program them ships 50% underway. About four increments, four ships worth of underway days are left on the table because of insufficient maintenance funding. On the aviation side, I'm leaving, you know, the equivalent of 20, you know, programming aircraft, 650 plus or minus hours annually. That times about, you know, 12, 15 unspent hours because of, of funding background. So 22 gets after aviation parts, particularly rotoring parts, recapitalization. So I think, we're, I think we're on a good glide slope. And lastly on that, it pulls us almost forward to the 21st century. Our, our backbone for our enterprise mission platform, our computers, you know, our, our C5 type stuff, there's some real investment. There. I rolled out back in, uh, I guess it was in, in 19, a conversation about a tech revolution. And, and the Hill really picked up on that. And they're sort of using that language back, hey, what do you need for the tech revolution? So we're really pulling our, our, our C5i backbone sort of forward to the 21st century. And that's important. Young men and women, they don't want to have more mobility on their personal device than I'm giving them on, you know, on their, on their desk and, and, and their mobility as they go to the field. So I think there's some goodness in there for us. But we need to 3 to 5% growth. That's the out-year need for the Coast Guard. If we can get a 22 budget and build on that, I think we could be the, the Coast Guard the nation needs. Yeah. Um, I'll turn it over to, to Brent. Any questions from, the, from our audience? Yes. Uh, so the first one, it seems to be there's a lot of interest about as Coast Guard goes global, what lessons and how are you updating your tactics, your training, your procedures when it comes to Chinese uh, maritime, like the echelon defense? So this is the, the Navy, their Coast Guard, and the maritime militia operating together. Especially what lessons you can share with us as the Chinese go further into the Pacific, like the Galapagos Islands, and they may employ the same tactics that you've seen in the South and East China Seas. Yeah, Brent, that's a, that's a good question. And um, yeah, you start with the Galapagos. So we're not seeing Chinese naval ships, Chinese Coast Guard ships. And matter of fact, if you're going to have a distant water fleet operating in a certain part of the world, we probably welcome a Chinese Coast Guard ship that was actually, you know, projecting some flag state oversight of what they're doing to make sure they're fishing, in, you know, not inside another nation's EEZs. That would be responsible flag state behavior. What they do is send these increasingly bigger ships further distances, and they're building bigger ships, and most of that fish does not land in the neighboring coastal states, you know, and it goes back to Beijing and it enters the market. Um, some portion of that, you know, about one in every five fish across the globe is harvested through illegal means. And uh, so we, we're paying attention to that distant water fleet for all the reasons I said before, sort of the, the economic piece, the ecological piece. But, you know, when we send a national security cutter over to the 7th Fleet, you know, the crew is trained to, to fight that ship. You know, generally we have not, you know, we, we, we have a functional pragmatic relationship with, with the China Coast Guard. You know, we work in the North Pacific Guard, which is an operation up, you know, generally in the North Pacific Ocean. We just had a national security cutter up there. That's the Canadians. It's the Japanese Coast Guard. It's the South Koreans. China Coast Guard's been involved. We used to have a memorandum of agreement with Chinese shipwriters on. We're sort of revisiting our relationship there, but we want to have a, a, a dialogue, a pragmatic relationship with China. Um, we want to, you know, 
how do we interact when we're in the Seventh Fleet area with cues, you know, communications and unexpected encounters at sea, and we're working that Coast Guard piece. It's sort of Navy to Navy, but we need to have that kind of functional working relationship with, with China Coast Guard there. So I think we send ships that are trained, that are ready to support, you know, when the ship goes to that region, they're under the tactical control of the Seventh Fleet Commander. You know, the Coast Guard isn't pulling the strings on what they do. We we work with uh, Seventh Fleet Indo-PACOM about what are the missions, what are the touch points, capacity building, you know, the, the, the Monroe that's there now did, did a Taiwan transit strait along with a DDG. I think they did a reciprocal strait, but I, I'm not necessarily looking for the Coast Guard to be, you know, less capable Navy. We want to do some sort of Coast Guard specific stuff, but, but we put them under the tactical control and that's a full up round capable ship. And that's sort of our model wherever we deploy our ships is we send them ready to, 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 to whatever the, the fight brings, you know. Thank you, Commandant. And then another question from the audience has to do with uh, the evolution of the Coast Guard to a global Coast Guard. And you mentioned some of the domestic pressures or stresses to pull, that are always pulling you back homeward, yeah. or a Western Hemisphere kind of focus. Can you go into a little bit more detail about how you see balancing that near abroad pressure or pull, and then also the need to operate more forward, even in US EEZs, that are further into the Pacific, but then also in places like the South China Sea and the Black Sea? Yeah, that's a great question, Brent. So we just took the Douglas Monroe was the last of the uh, Hamilton-class high-endurance cutters, 378s. We decommissioned that in April up in Alaska. And the replacement for that is going to be an offshore patrol cutter. We're, the first four offshore patrol cutters will go to the West Coast, the first two to L.A., three and four to Alaska. Whether we take one and two and make those Alaska boats, put new ones, we'll figure that out. But you know, those are a few years down the road. So in the interim period, it wasn't necessarily the plan few years back, but I need to have some capability in the Bering Sea. You know, that's 50% of the nation's fish, 50 plus percent is harvested from those waters that, that we consume and your fish sandwich at McDonald's, you know, across that whole gamut. That is a critically important domestic living marine resource environment up there. So I need Coast Guard presence. So I've got to fill those gaps with national security because I got one cutter up there, the Alex Haley, which is a former Navy ship, a little bit older, but, but good. She's a stalwart, stands a watch, but she's getting 185 days. I need to fill the other calendar days here, and generally sometimes it's more than one ship. Senator Sullivan and the Alaska delegation would like to see see more capacity up there. So there's that trade-off of NSCs to the Indo-Pacific versus there. There's the uh, persistent threat here in the Western Hemisphere. We're removing about, you know, we had a little bit of a redux here in uh, in 20 and maybe a little bit in 21 with COVID. So there's a little bit of lockdown in some of the countries, but on average, would you know? plus or minus 200 metric tons. That's about 440,000 pounds of illicit cocaine coming out of the, the Andean Ridge region destined for American streets through the Central American quarter. National security cutters are truly the most capable platform down there with their, with their intelligence capabilities, their long legs, their ability to fly the Scan Eagle. That is the preferred package. So, you know, when you got a let, you know, I got nine in service today, two more being constructed, you know, and each of them are available about 50% of the time, you're trying to spread that across the globe. I think the real game changer comes when we start to get these offshore patrol cutters that have more legs, more capability, will be newer, more reliable. But um, they, yeah, there's a tension point. Then you add the AFRICOM threat. You know, AFRICOM doesn't get as many resources, as some of the other combatant commands because of the demand on naval forces. You know, the Navy's been really busy and they, you know, I don't think there's enough naval forces to continue to feed the Indo-Pacific commanders. And I say that with, you know, not tongue in cheek, but Indo-Pacific commanders bought their plate as we figure out, you know, how do we posture ourselves in that theater? The Arabian Gulf has remained, you know, I think 
there was a potential desire to maybe do some drawdown there, but that's remained sort of kinetic and sporty. Um, so I think those Coast Guard ships partnering off the African content are pretty important. So yeah, I think we're going to have to continue to juggle that. So it's how much can I commit the uh, the combatant commander's demand signal. I, I don't meet that through the RFF process, but I try to put as much into that fight as I can while attenuating our domestic risk. The, the last piece of that is the, the fast response cutters are a little bit, quite a bit more capable than the island class I replace. So I can do some of those, we can do some of those, what used to be a 210 mission, maybe with a fast response cutter, a couple of them teamed up, and since we have more of that capacity, we're looking at novel ways to free up those, those bigger capital platforms to do some of, the, some of the global work. One more, kind of wrapping a couple ideas yeah. into one. So as we've moved out of Afghanistan, there's a lot of questions about continuing U.S. presence in the Middle East. Uh, and I would probably expand that to be the Indian Ocean region. Uh, how do you see your presence in the Persian Gulf evolving in the future, uh, change, with a change, assuming a changing footprint in the Middle East? Yeah, so I mentioned, Brent, earlier that, I think I mentioned that we, we put two of six planned new fast response cutters in what we call Patrol Forces Southwest Asia. That's in Manama, Bahrain. So the next two will come later this fall, two more in the spring. We will have six very capable, you know, considerably more capable than the ship replacements working there for the 5th Fleet Commander on the Arabian Gulf. Nor normally, Northern Arabian Gulf with a little more legs, probably maybe even grow their, their reach or capability. You know, the Navy, I think, has got some older PC-179 is also built by the same shipbuilder, Bowner, built our island class. They're getting a little older, so I think they're looking at an LCS solution, but I do think they think some drawdown. We made a commitment a few years back that we were going to recapitalize our old ships, and we would be forward deployed in support of that mission. So I think, I think that will remain a place, and I, I showed that one slide with our advanced interdiction team. That's you know a, a disaggregated small team that supports the greater mission set over there. We've got a maritime engagement team. It's about 20 Coasties that train uh, Gulf Coalition partners. When the Aussies come through, the New Zealanders are running CTF-150 there. we got Coasties on that team. You know, we build out the capacity. They, they're searching for heroin. They're looking for weapons. So we, we've got to, I think we will remain in that region. You talk about, you know, India. I think the strategic quad, and we think about Japan, we think about India, Australia, the U.S. Coast Guard. India is one of those burgeoning places where, you know, India's got a pretty capable Coast Guard. I think what we have to be careful of is, you know, how much do you take this 42,000 active duty Coast Guard and stretch it then? But I think we're looking to have some key leader engagements with the Indians. We've had a little bit of that. I think they want to do more. We've got to sort of synchronize that um, in terms of our capacity. Key parts yeah. of the question. Uh, do we have time enough for one more question or how many more? Yes, absolutely. So another question involves climate change and changing weather patterns. Yep. Uh, operationally, for your cutter, your cuttermen that are out at sea and operating, you know, also in the, the air patrols as well, are you seeing any real tangible impact of uh, climate change or changing weather patterns on how you operate the Coast Guard? Yeah, you know, Brent, let me start sort of in a specific region. Let me start in the high latitudes, having just been up in the Arctic. You know, so I've been a commissioned Coast Guard officer since 1983. I think in the 80s was when we really started paying a little attention to the climate in the Arctic for the first time. We started to see some indicators. You know, over the 38-year course of my career, you know, the ice extent in the Arctic has decreased about a third. You know, that's that's substantive. And and you know, the the Arctic, some will refer to it as sort of the refrigerator for the world a bit. You know. Um, where there used to be ice and snow-covered ice, 
tends to absorb about 40% of the sun's energy. You know, when that ice melts, now it's dark blue water. It tends to absorb about 80-90% of the sun's energy. So we're seeing a little bit of a warming, less ice. When there's ice over the winter months, but it's thinner, less snow covered, a little bit more of the warm ocean escapes through the ice. So I think what we're seeing is a, a slight warming of the world's oceans that tends to affect current patterns. You know, I'll defer to the scientists whether, you know, Ida, Laura last year, we see, you know, what I've seen in the course of my career and really in these last four years, and a lot of these hurricanes have this rapid intensification. Harvey was one of those storms. We were sort of paying attention to Harvey back in 17, coming across the Campeche Bank, then all of a sudden Harvey, you know, hits Robert, Texas, and, and really with a high wind event, then it becomes a, a rain event in, in Houston and, and Port Arthur. You know, they got close to 51 inches of rain in 36, 48 hours. You know, that's that rapid intensification. Is that tied to the Arctic? I don't know. But there's a climate piece that tends to impact, you know, our high latitude work. Arguably, scientists would tell you there might be a climate piece that impacts the storms. We are America's first responder for maritime events or hurricanes. Um, you know, as we build out facilities, I look down the eastern seaboard, you know, up to Miami, Norfolk, are sort of two of those areas, parts of New York that really, I think, climate change, sea level rise seems to be pretty palpable, more so than some other places. So I think we factored into our infrastructure, how we build new, where we build new, um, in terms of our operations. You know, the piece that I didn't talk about, but migratory fish stocks, you know, as you look at the African continent, 40% of the protein that they consume is from the ocean. You know, as the oceans warm and fish migrate, there's a moratorium on fishing in the Arctic right now, but what does that look like? So we're going to be drawn to have more Coast Guard mission in the Arctic as sea lanes, you know, get more open. Um, I think the climate is, is very much something that we're paying attention to and, and being thoughtful about. Time for one, one final question, and then sure. sir, if you'd like to give any yeah. closing comments, I guess. So the final question has to do with manning the Coast Guard. You mentioned that you're going to have to grow and stretch right. your limited resources and crews. Um, how's, how are you addressing the manning demands and also getting people to go to sea? Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question. There's probably about 20 questions in there, Brent. I would say, first and foremost, Coast Guard's hiring. And I like to think our, our brand is strong. I like to think the work is rewarding. You know, I have been focused on my you know, I guess about 38, 39 months in the saddle of a 48-year tenure. I'll wrap up next summer, but really on a Coast Guard that's more reflective of the nation we serve. So across the ranks, we're about 15% women. In our officer corps, that's about 23%. So we just came from a Board of Visitors event on Capitol Hill this morning, but, you know, congressional members, some presidential appointees that are sort of comprising our board to help us, uh, you know, provide some oversight there. But there's a good news story. You know, the Corps of Cadets is, you know, north of 35% women, about 35, 36% underrepresented groups. So are, we're marching towards that, that more inclusive Coast Guard. But I tell you, it's um, young men and women got a lot of choices. You know, back in 2018, across all the armed forces, we entered this new era of the new blended retirement system. So, you know, the Coasties that I served with, you know, if, if you had eight, nine years, you're almost halfway to a defined benefit 20-year retirement you start to, you know, I think there was an inclination to stay. Under this new blended retirement model, there's a TSP, thrift savings plan, you pay yourself first. You get around year 11, 12, you're in, some, you're in a location you like, your spouse has a good job, your kids are active, school, sports, church, whatever, and say you're a marine science technician. So you, you got a good head on your shoulders, you're working with the energy sector down in Houston, and, you know, Shell taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, 
I see you're coming up on your, you know, your your 12-year point. You know, the Shell would love to have you on our team. And, you know, arguably the smarts of our men and women, they could probably earn more in the private sector. Um, they tap them on the shoulder. They, they, you know, add a little bit of sweetening of the money. You don't have to move your family. A little more stability. Because it's, it's not easy to be a It's a privilege to serve. But there's a lot of uprooting. You know, I'm, I'm an 18-move guy in, in, in 38 years. And, you know, kids that did three high schools in four years, three of my five. But, but I, that's not a complaint. It's a privilege. But I think this next generation may not be quite as – they're looking for a little more permeability, portability. So we've got to think smart in that. So for us, I think the question is we're hiring. We're trying to broaden and be a, the most inclusive Coast Guard in the world. We're trying to be a Coast Guard more representative. And I think we've got to think about – Talent management is a really, I, I would tell you, the 27th commandant who follows me, he or she is going to have to spend a lot of attention on talent management and human capital in light of this change. We have the highest retention in the armed services, but we also have a lot of E6s, 7s, E5s that are really in key leadership roles, and they get loaded up very early. So keeping some of them on through 20-year, 20 20-plus-year 20 career is critically important to the success of the Coast Guard. So um, I would tell you there's a lot in that conversation, but... The young men and women that are finding their way to our ranks, I tell you, it's the smartest generation of Coasties we ever have. It's a privilege. I'm glad I entered this Coast Guard Academy in 1979 because I'm probably not smart enough to get on the team here in 2021. Uh, excellent. Um, and so we've covered a, a lot of ground, talking some acquisition and manning and global yeah. kinds of issues. Um, any any final thoughts and, and takeaways before we, we wrap up here? Yeah, I, I think I would just leave you with, um, you know, in this – there's a new national security strategy, you know, under Penn, uh, the new national defense strategy. I, I think, you know, some version of a conversation about great power competition, a lot of focus on China. I think that slide I showed, and I don't know if you, if you can go back to that, but that, that, that cooperate, compete, lethality slide, I think that's the lens that we will continue to try to position the Coast Guard to be the most, you know, advantageous capability, resource, armed force for the nation. I think when I sort of reflect on, on my career, that, that real unique amalgamation of, of law enforcement, armed force, National Intelligence Committee membership, regulatory authorities, partner from that, that sheriff with one or two boats I mentioned to, to DOD and work in that middle space between State Department, the diplomacy, and the lethality of DOD. I think there's a lot there that are going to continue to really make the Coast Guard a really relevant global player. But, but balancing that domestic, you know, Brent's question, balancing that domestic, or the question from the audience, that balance of domestic issues and global issues, that's the sweet spot. That's the art form where, you know, and sitting in the Department of Homeland Security, you know, that, that title says a lot. I've been blessed that the, the secretaries I've had sort of see the value proposition of the Coast Guard being able to do the domestic critically important responsibilities and push us into that, you know, demand signal from the combatant commanders and international partners. I think that'll be the sort of the balance juggling after the Coast Guard, but I'm pretty confident we can do that well. And really, would the, the last bit would just be a pitch, you know, to our congressional overseers, to the administration to say, hey, as other folks validate the value of the Coast Guard, and I think the administrations, both past and current, and the Congress do that, you know, what it takes to, to, to put fight in the game is just the, the appropriate level of resources. So we'll continue to tell our story and hopefully, you know, stir up those third-party validators of why the Coast Guard matters across the globe, and I think we'll be okay. Commandant, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, and thank you for everyone who watched online. And I believe there will be a, a survey going out, so feel free to be candid on that with 
with how we did, and everyone have a great uh, rest of your afternoon. Yeah, James, thanks for your privilege, and to the Heritage Foundation for being here. And Brent, thanks for helping us out with the Q&A here. Thank you.